Hey, well, thank you. Um, it's great to be with Martin uh, in the service today. And welcome again from me. The Lord be with you. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, preparing and wrestling with the passage that we have to look forward to in a moment uh, that we're going to read from Leviticus. Now, look, if you've ever tried to read the Bible through from beginning to end, Leviticus is probably that bit where you're beginning to slow down a bit. Genesis, Gray, Exodus, good. Maybe the halfway through Exodus, it gets a little bit tougher. Uh, because we get all kind of lots of detail about the tabernacle. And then Leviticus it's, gets a little bit harder still. Um, so the key that I have for unlocking Leviticus, in fact, the key I have for unlocking so much in the Bible is, is this. The Bible is not a legal story. The Bible is a re- regal story. Uh, say that with me. The Bible's not a legal story. It's a regal story. Uh, tell the person in the room with it with, maybe if you are with someone, and just tell them the Bible's not a legal story. It's a regal story. Uh, many of us uh, for years, and, and most of our Christian forefathers, uh, have read the Bible as a legal story. Uh, a story of how people become good, or about how a holy God deals with sin. A story primarily about rules and judgment and behaviour. A story about right and wrong, good and bad. But I don't think this is the best way to read the story, read the scriptures. The story is not primarily a legal story, it's a regal story. It's a story about a king, the world's true king, the creator king, who branded his human beings with a royal identity commissioned us to bear his image and who created us specifically to rule and reign over the earth in partnership with him and in honour for him or of him. The Bible is not simply a story about how God deals with individuals who do right and wrong about guilt and forgiveness. It's about how God is looking for a people who will bear his name, carry his identity, who will fulfil his purposes and who express his character. Our earliest ancestors, Adam and Eve, may have failed in this respect, but it doesn't take long to recognise that we are no better than them. And so the Bible is a regal story of how the world's true king chose an unworthy or fallible group of people to represent his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. It's the story of a treaty, of a covenant that God makes with this unlikely tribe, Uh, that he picks out from all the others to fulfil his royal plan. A people he calls his own. A people who don't deserve it. A people who struggle and resist him the whole way through. A people who are rebellious and hard-hearted, even calls them stiff-necked people. A people who are like sheep, drifting this way and that, who get lost and injured on the way. A people who are like a vine, Uh, that needs training and restraining in order to become fruitful. A people without any name or dignity or identity of their own until he picks them out and he picks them up and establishes them as his own. He calls them his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. And that's what this next part of the story is all about and which Kate helped us uh, with last week. It's It's about how this heavenly king who chose this ragtag family to attach his name to and called them out to be different, distinct, or we would use the word holy. 
and he provides for them a way to be constantly renewed and refreshed in their royal identity, despite their failures. So my hope is that as we see it as a regal story rather than a legal story, uh, that things will begin to make sense. The king's name is Yahweh. You'll see the word the Lord uh, in the text, the original text. It will just have Yahweh and it's been translated in our Bibles as the Lord. And, and he's the bigger king and more powerful than Pharaoh. He's the almighty, the creator God. He's the world's true king. And he calls Moses Pharaoh's adopted son to be his royal messenger on his behalf and a royal leader to go and tell this worldly king, this pharaoh, who has enslaved his chosen people and put them to work on his kingly projects to build his kingdom one brick at a time and to go and tell him to let my people go so that they can worship me, not you, that they can honour me and not you. It's a battle for authority. It's a battle for the king comparing with each other. You see that the world's true king has royal plans for his royal people to be a blessing to the world and not to be enslaved by the world. And so he confronts uh, the, the kingdom of Pharaoh and liberates his people, sets them free, free from by the, by the mighty acts of his hands and by the power and by his grace, because he's chosen them to be a royal nation. And then he takes them up to the mountain and and there he establishes his dignifying covenant with them. He ratifies his royal commission for them. He signs his royal decree in duplicate on two tablets and the people accept their royal identity. And the covenant is put in a gold box. We, we call it the Ark of the Covenant and it's placed at the centre of the community at all times, except for when they, they move. And then it's placed at the front of the community, leading them forward. It's the start. It's the beginning of a new world. Except there is one big problem. The king, Yahweh, knows that while he will be faithful, his people won't be. They'll let him down. It was grace that saved them. He chose them, not the other way around. He called them to be his people, to represent him, to be different, to be distinct, to be set apart and to be holy. But his, re his royal people aren't, are just people like us. And when they drift off they'll dishon and dishonour the name that they bear, when they dishonour each other, when they act as if their birthright means nothing to them, well, then they'll need a way back to the king to their God. They'll need a way to become clean, to regain their identity, regain their dignity and to be forgiven. So the king's reputation is now completely entwined with the reputation of his people. He depends on them living up to their calling. They are forever entwined together. They are Yahweh's people now. So let's listen to this passage, this strange passage. Uh, from Leviticus, from the Torah, and see what God says to us about how we can be restored into community with him once again. Let's listen. This morning's reading comes from Leviticus 4, verses 1 to 35. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally, 
and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it there before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting. He is to dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. The priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull he must take outside the camp to a place ceremonially clean where the ashes are thrown and burn it there in a wood fire on the ash heap. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, when they realise their guilt and the sin they committed becomes known, the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin offering and present it before the tent of meeting. The elders of the community are to lay their hands on the bull's head before the Lord, and the bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the bull's blood into the tent of meeting. He shall dip his finger into the blood and sprinkle it before the Lord seven times in front of the curtain. He is to put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He shall remove all the fat from it and burn it on the altar and do with this bull just as he did with the bull for the sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for the community and they will be forgiven. Then he shall take the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. This is a sin offering for the community. When a leader sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the commands of the Lord his God, when he realises his guilt and sin he has committed becomes known, he must bring as his offering a male goat without defect. He is to lay his hands on the goat's head and slaughter it at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered before the Lord. It is a sin offering. If any member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commandments, when they realise their guilt and sin they have committed becomes known, they must bring as their offering for the sin they committed a female goat without defect. They are to lay their hands on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place of the burnt offering. In this way the priest will make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. Okay, so big thanks to uh, Nathan, Lottie and Ned there. A shout out to them, I've been told to say that. I'm so down with the kids. So yeah, thank you so much for that. Wow, what did you make of that passage? How did you find that? Uh, okay, so this passage and the whole of Leviticus is really about how Yahweh, Yahweh's royal priesthood, are going to be able to maintain their relationship, their side of the covenant with their with their God, with their king. It's not a legal story, it's a regal story. 
I, I wonder it, how many of you have watched The Crown uh, on Netflix. It's not a legal story. It's a regal story. Uh, that's how it works. Uh, in one sense, it's just another story about a famous family. Uh, and what makes them different is that there is their fame and their celebrity. But it, the, I guess that's true. But really, it's a family because they're different because they are royals. So what comes with that is that they have a series of expectations and obligations and responsibilities. They represent a nation. Now, as we know, things go wrong for the royal family. Uh, there is jealousy, and there is adultery, and, and there is moral failure. But it's not a legal story. It's a regal story. It's, a sto- it's not a story about right and wrong, about guilt. It's a regal story. It's a story about identity and responsibility and obligation. Things are not just right and wrong. They are right and wrong in the context of their specific calling to be the royal family. When they make a mistake, they don't just fail morally. They shame their name. They bring disrepute to the nation. They dishonor their position. And that's what drives the story. It's a story about reputation and honor. And it makes sense to read the Bible in the same way, to see it as a story that ties the reputation of the king with the behavior of the people who represent him. The conduct of the kingdom of priests, which is what God calls them. Even if they sin unintentionally, there needs to be a reckoning, a reckoning that the stain needs cleansing, the shame needs removing, the debt needs paying off. So earlier in the story, uh, Yahweh repeatedly brands the people with his identity. Firstly, every male child bears the mark of the covenant in his body. And then every Sabbath, they identify themselves as belonging to the holy God, unlike all the others, by making that day holy. And then they're given the Ten Commandments. The people bear his name. They are branded as his people. They represent him. They are a kingdom of priests. Uh, So think about how brands work today. All brands need protecting. A manufacturer like Nike or a football team like Manchester United or a celebrity on the stage or a nation like the United States, their name matters. So notice when a nation does, uh, what a nation does when a president is seen as behaving in a shameful way. They impeach him. They bring him to court. And they seek to distance themselves from him. Or when a sports personality is found guilty of cheating, how quickly the companies that once were so proud to have him wear their labels and their their icons on their chest suddenly reject him and remove him from their account. They distance him from their relationship. They scrap their connections. Or notice how a town or a village where someone acts in a way that is so shameful that the whole town will rise up and disassociate themselves with the individual. Or the way that a school, whose brand is everything that they have, will seek to manage the brand of their school in a thousand ways every single day and even expel, that's the word we still use, a child who shares who who wears the badge of the school identity every day, despite the fact that their parents are still willing to pay the fees. So how will Yahweh react when his royal priesthood, marked out as his own, 
branded as his own, fail to live up to the obligations and responsibilities of his royal commission. Uh, Many people um, say that the God of the Old Testament uh, is completely different from the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old is a God of wrath and the God of the New is a God of grace and forgiveness. And, And that's neither helpful nor true. Yahweh in Genesis, uh, Exodus and Leviticus is full of grace. And Jesus in the Gospels is not immune from wrath. Jesus came to fulfill the Torah, he said, not to scrap it. So we need to see the grace in these passages while not minimising God's holiness or his wrath. Yes, this is the Lord Almighty. This is Yahweh Elohim that we are dealing with here. And he's terrifying but he, because he's the king, but he's also full of grace. And do you remember back uh, in the story earlier on in Exodus 34, just after the people reject him and bow down and worship uh, their newly formed golden calf, Yahweh passes in front of Moses in the cloud, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. And faithfulness. This is his character on show. We can see the holiness of God in this passage, but can we also see his grace? Despite their unfaithfulness, the God of grace will not drop his people. He will not expel them completely. He will not cancel his relationship or delete his covenant. Instead, in very precise detail, he provides and spells out ways that the relationship can be built up again or protected and restored. And that's what Leviticus is all about. The sacrifices outlined in the chapter are God's way of maintaining the relationship. They are his way of making good Something when it goes wrong, even if it's unintentional. The sacrifice is so strange to us. Makes sense in a culture where animals were prized sources of income and status and wealth as well as nourishment. And these sacrifices are symbolically very powerful. They are very costly for all concerned. There is no cheap grace in this story. And did you notice how these particular sacrifices are called sin offerings? They're required when an individual commits a sin against God unintentionally. And you might have noticed that there are different sacrifices for for different kinds of people. There's a hierarchy of significance. So when a priest or the whole community sins, they must bring a bull. Or when a leader sins, they bring a he-goat. But when an individual sins... They bring a she-goat or a lamb. In each case, though, the the sinner has to take personal responsibility for their error, for the shame that they've brought. And they have to associate themselves with the sin by placing their hands on the animal as it is slaughtered. Very powerful way of connecting you with the innocent animal. And then the innocent and unblemished animal is killed. Its blood is which is a symbol of its life, that it's just given up, is sprinkled or or poured out in various ways on various altars. It acts like a disinfectant. But in the case of the bull offerings for the priests or for the whole community, the ones that bear God's name most strongly, the blood is also taken to the 
curtain of the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. Why is that? Well, it, it feels to me like it's as if their sin doesn't just contaminate them as individuals. It's tainted God's reputation as well. His sacred space needs cleansing too. But the point of all this, unlike the way that we treat others today, is that instead of the individual who has sinned being cut off, the sacrifice enables the individual concerned, even if they are leaders or priests, to remain connected, to live in community, to receive forgiveness. So the whole process is not designed to distance them from the community or to add further shame but to take away their shame and to cleanse them. So notice how at the end of each paragraph it says, in this way, the priest will make atonement, which means covering for them, and they will be forgiven. They will be forgiven. Leviticus 4 tells us how God's grace is enabled and expressed. Sins are forgiven and paid for, and the community remains clean. So how does this uh, apply to our lives today? Um, Tori and I uh, had a bit of a clean-up the other week, and we filled up the car with rubbish from the garage, and we took it to the dump. Uh, I love going to the dump. Who doesn't? Well, actually, I don't love going to the dump. I love coming away from the dump. I go heavy and I leave happy. And I mean, people's faces are so different on the way in to the way out. On the way in, you're a bit anxious, a bit serious. And the way out, people just look relieved and released. It's fantastic. Anyway, that was my feeling. There was a big sign at the dump in Bath, uh, where we lived before. And on the sign, uh, just as we came in, it said, there is no away. I thought that was such a, a, a great way of putting it. There is no And forgiveness came at a price. Hundreds of years later, uh, after the first tabernacle had been made, Jesus was taken outside the city and killed. And his blood flowed and he died. And we can now see, looking back, that his was the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. And so we echo the words of Isaiah in chapter 53 when he said this, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. For our guilt, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, reconciliation, connection, was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed and cleansed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. But Yahweh, the Lord, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. His life was an offering for sin. The story of the Bible, the story we live in, is not a legal story, it's a regal one. And it finds its climax in the death of an innocent, 
unblemished man hanging on a cross with a crown on his head. The king. The king gives up his life as a sacrifice for us, his people. The king of the covenant bears the debt of the failures of his people and he himself atones for their sin that they could never make amends for. By his blood we are cleansed, by his sacrifice we are forgiven, and the covenant is maintained. Forgiveness is not the end of the story though, just the restart button. Forgiveness calls us back into relationship and back into obedience again. It it restores us to our true identity as royals, as kings, as bearers of God's name. So Peter, we all know Peter's story, the guy who messed up so many times. Well, he knows what it is to be restored and renewed in his relationship with God and, and with Jesus. And in his letter, he says this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy, distinct nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You can see how the story's not a legal one, it's a royal one, it's a regal one. Peter is echoing the words spoken over Israel in Exodus, God's chosen son, his kingdom of priests, his treasured possession. And he's saying that we, even though uncircumcised, If we have given our allegiance to Jesus as our king, then we have been grafted into the same inheritance and we become heirs of the promise. And this is so great. This is so amazing, isn't it? This is unwarranted grace. Just like Israel before us, we don't deserve it. It's not our goodness that did anything. It's not that we are worthy of being included into the people of God. It's not that we chose him. It's that he chose us. And it's simply by faith, by giving our allegiance to the king that we are saved. It's an act of grace on God's part. We were not holy or set apart before we were included in Christ. As he goes on to say, he says, once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. But we need to know that there is a purpose for this mercy, for this gift, for this grace, for this forgiveness. And it's that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into light. We need to know that in Christ we are given a new identity and a new purpose. When we are branded with his name at our baptisms, Father, Son and Spirit. When we receive the sign of the cross on our foreheads. We are not just included into Christ with all the benefits of our forgiveness and inheritance that that brings. We become representatives of the king and his kingdom. And like the royal sons and daughters that we become, we take on obligations of royal behaviour. So Peter starts his letter by saying this, We are God's elect, God's chosen, exiles in the world. In it, but not of it, like Jesus said. Chosen by God the Father and set apart and made holy by the work of the Spirit. Called to be obedient to King Jesus. 
and sprinkled with his blood, cleansed and forgiven. So brothers and sisters, God has chosen us to be a regal kingdom. He has branded us as his holy people and marked us with his holy spirit. We are dearly loved and called to be holy. Let's take this seriously, this calling that God has given us. God is holy. We must be holy too. Now, as I say that, I know for myself, my failures, We shame him and we bring shame on his people again and again. But in God's mercy, God will forgive our sins. Jesus, the sin offering, is our means of grace. So I wonder where this leaves you personally today as a member of this holy community. I'm going to finish by one of um, the prayers that has been prayed many times, thousands of times in churches across the world, week after week. A prayer of penitence, of confession. It is that moment, the weekly moment, where we reenact the sacrifices of old, as it were. And take hold of the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us. Perhaps you join me and confess your sin to God. Let us return to God and confess our sins. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and of great kindness. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our wickedness. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy upon those who fear him. Is there any way in me that has brought disrepute to your name, Father? Search my heart right now. We say together, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have wandered and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things that we ought to have done. And we have done those things that we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. But you, O Lord, have mercy upon us sinners. Spare those who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent. 
according to your promises declared to mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may live a disciplined, righteous and godly life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. May the God of love and power Forgive us and free us from our sins. Heal and strengthen us by his spirit and raise us to new life in Christ our Lord. Amen.